Well, today we're in a great passage of Scripture in Matthew chapter 17. We're going to look at verses 14 to 21 this morning, but before we do that, we just kind of need to remind ourselves and remember where we are in Matthew's gospel. Remember, Jesus was up on a mountain. Which mountain, we can't be sure. Our text today makes us think that he was likely in a mountain in Galilee because when he comes down from the mountain, there's once again a crowd of people waiting for him. On this mountain, Jesus was transfigured, if you look at verse 2 of Matthew 17, and he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And so Peter, James, and John were with Jesus on the mountain, and they saw his glory. And they saw Moses and Elijah, and they heard a voice from heaven. They heard God the Father say in verse 5, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And now they're coming down the mountain. Verse 9, And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And so they're coming down from what we call a mountaintop experience. They're coming down from the mountain, and there's a great contrast between what we see in the first few verses of of Matthew 17 and what we're going to see now in verses 14 and following. Again, today we're going to look at verses 14 to 21. Let's read our text as we begin here. Verse 14, And when they came to the crowd... A man came up to him and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son for he has seizures and he suffers terribly. For often he falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples and they could not heal him. And Jesus answered, oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the boy was healed instantly. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, Because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. Well, this passage is meant to teach us an important lesson. It has one of the greatest promises in all of Scripture. Jesus says in verse 20, nothing will be impossible for you. Nothing. Nothing will be impossible. When Jesus was gone, the disciples failed. The, the nine, we're going to call them today, the nine, the twelve, without Peter, James, and John, these nine could not heal the boy and they could not cast out the demon. Jesus was gone, but Jesus was gone other times as well when the disciples had performed healings and exorcisms. You see, without faith, they could not. But with faith, even small faith, Jesus says nothing would be impossible. 
And in a sense, as we think about this text, we are like the nine. Jesus is gone. Of course, he's not gone totally. He's alive and he's with us, but he has ascended to heaven. And so he's near, but if we kind of picture ourselves like the the nine, he is up a mountain, ascended to the right hand of the Father, and we don't see him. And while he is gone, we have a mission just like the nine had a mission. And our mission, which is so important for us that we need to look at it again in Matthew 28, go ahead and turn there. You see, Matthew's teaching us a lesson in discipleship and a lesson that's going to prepare us for the mission that he's going to give us at the end of this gospel. Our mission, starting in verse 18 of Matthew 28, Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And so make disciples of Jesus Christ. That's the main verb. That's our primary task. That's what we are commanded to do. And to do this, we must go. We must go. And the the people who must be made disciples, they're not always where we are. And so we must go to them. And we go and we preach the gospel and we make disciples. We make converts. We baptize them. And then we teach these disciples to obey everything that Jesus commanded. That's our mission. And while we do this, according to verse 20, Jesus is with us. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus is with us, but like he was with the eleven when he spoke these words, he was not physically with them. He ascended to heaven. And so he's with us, but we don't see him. And so we are like the nine. Jesus has left us a mission But he's not here to lead the way. And in order to succeed, we need faith. Because without him, we can do nothing. Without faith, everything will be impossible for us. But with faith, we can accomplish what the Lord would have us do. And so our text is designed to teach us about the power of true faith. And if we want to avoid the failure of the nine, we need faith. They failed because of little faith, or probably more likely, as we'll talk about later, no faith or poor faith. They failed because they did not rely on God, who alone could give them success. They weren't dependent on God. They didn't trust Him. They didn't rely on Him. And in their self-sufficiency, they could not do what they were supposed to do. See, in a startling paradox, they were unable to do what the Lord himself had given them authority to do. And why again was that? Because of their little faith. Little faith is better understood here as poor faith. Because what we'll see is that the tiniest faith is enough to do great things. Faith like a grain of mustard seed is enough to move a mountain. And there's so much for us to take hold of in this passage. I want to get into it right away here. We're going to look at it under three headings. We're going to see, first of all, the disciples' inability. The disciples' inability in verses 14 to 16, and then again in verse 19. 
Secondly, we're going to see the, the Lord's frustration and power in verses 17 and 18. And then we're going to see the Lord's explanation and promise in verse 20. So number one, the disciples' inability. Now the the text divides up maybe more naturally into two sections. There's the request from the boy's father, and then Jesus' response to him, and then there's the request from the disciples in verse 19, and then Jesus' response to them. But both of these requests end up showing us this one thing under our heading. They show us the disciples' inability. And their inability becomes the central theme of this kind of initial section of this pericope. In verse 16, and I brought him to your disciples and they could not heal him. And then again in verse 19. (coughs) Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, why could we not cast it out? And so they could not heal And they could not cast out that particular demon. They were unable. They lacked the power to do what needed to be done. They could not do what Jesus had commanded them to do. And that's important to recognize here. What they failed to do is what Jesus had commissioned them to do. And so I want you to turn back with me to Matthew chapter 10 to see this. Matthew chapter 10, we'll start here in verse 1. And he, Jesus, called to him his twelve disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. And then verses 2 to 4 gives the names of the twelve. Simon, Peter, James, and John, they were with Jesus on the mountain. But the remaining nine, they had been given the authority to do the very thing that they could not do on that day. The twelve had authority given by Jesus, again, over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. Look at verse 5. These twelve, Jesus sent out instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and proclaim as you go, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand Verse 8, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You have received without paying, give without pay. And so they were to go, which is the same as us. And they had a message to preach. It was the same message that Jesus preached. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Just like we preach the gospel. And accompanying with this proclamation and as a sign and a seal of their authenticity, they were to heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, and cast out demons. Now Matthew does not tell us how this mission in chapter 10 went. He focused really on the commission itself, which would again apply to us later on as we kind of come to the end of this gospel. He focused on what Jesus told them to do and what Jesus himself had done in kind of leading the way and showing them and how to do this, these things. But presumably they went on this mission 
and they did what they were commanded to do. And if you look at verse uh, chapter 11 and verse 1, it says there, when Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. And so Jesus instructed them in chapter 10. They went and did what he said, and then Jesus himself came to the cities where they had ministered. In Luke chapter 10, which parallels Matthew 11, an even bigger group of disciples returns from a mission. This is Luke 10, 17. Excuse me. I haven't preached in a while. I got to get used to uh, get my voice back and stuff. So bear with me today. Luke ten seventeen. the 72 returned with joy, it says, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And so there's this evidence in the other gospels that the, the disciples had, had done these very things that Jesus commanded them to do. And I think we can assume then that the disciples had healed and they had cast out demons at least occasionally. And that's why it seems like they're surprised when they could not heal this particular boy. Let's look back at our text. Look at the disciples' inability. Matthew has given us the shortest account of this. Mark goes into great detail. Mark seems to sometimes tell stories for the sake of the stories themselves. Luke also goes into great detail, but he left out the disciples' question, why could we not cast it out? And even without that half of the story, Luke's account is almost as long as Matthew's. And so as usual, Matthew is very concise, and he wants us to get the main point of the story, his main point, which again is, at this point, it's the disciples' failure. And so verse 14, when they came to the crowd, and they is Peter and James and John, along with Jesus, a man came up to him, a man came to Jesus, and kneeling down before him, it says, kneeling is a sign of respect and humility. And look at what the man says in verse 15. He said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he has seizures, and he suffers terribly, for often he falls into the fire and often into the water. Now the word Lord there in the Greek is kurios, and it's likely that the man means no more than, than sir. But we know that this word was often used for the divine name Yahweh. And we've spoken about that before, so we won't, we won't go into detail about that. But this man comes to the Lord, kneels down before him, gives him this address, at least a, this polite address, calling him Lord or Master or Sir. And the man desires mercy on his son. And it's literally here, the son of mine. And likely this is his only son. And this son has seizures, according to the ESV. The Legacy Standard Bible also translates it seizures. The New American Standard and the King James have, he is a lunatic. A lunatic. The King James says he's an epileptic. Well, what the boy suffered from was especially if we go to Mark and Luke, it was, it was the same form of sickness, some form of sickness that gave him seizures. 
Now, the ancient world knew about epilepsy, which, which also has seizures, and, and they had a different word for it, not the word that's used in this passage. The word used here is a word in connection with the moon. And the ancient world saw this connection between seizures, at least on occasion, and the lunar cycle. Lunar has to do with the moon. And so the King James, the lunatic in English, he's a a lunatic, somebody affected by the moon, somebody affected by the lunar cycle. And these seizures or this condition, whatever it was, was, was terrible for the boy. He suffers terribly, the father said. He explained further that he often falls into the fire and often into the water. And if we think about this a little bit, we, we imagine this, this boy with various burns all over his body. In that time, they would cook on open fires, kind of open uh, stoves with, with wood-burning fires underneath them, and there'd be an openness to those fires, maybe something even like our campfires with a little camp set up above it, a little cooking set up. And falling in would be bad enough, but falling in under a seizure, you could imagine how bad that would be, how much worse it would be. And then to have that happen often for this boy. And the water too, whether this was into rivers or troughs of water for animal or large pots around that for cleaning. We think of a boy who is often in danger and close to death. And maybe that's why in verse 17, Jesus says, bring him to me, and he uses the plural. See, a boy like this would need constant oversight, multiple caregivers constantly watching over him to make sure that he didn't have a seizure into a fire or into the water. Now, Matthew doesn't uh, tell us about the demon until verse 18, but in Mark it says, and this is from Mark 9, 17 and 18, the father says, teacher, I brought my son to you for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. And so we get this picture of a boy, a mute boy, and the demon throws him into the fires and, and throws him into water. And as one commentator pointed out, quote, this is not accidental, but sinister. He is demon-possessed, end quote. And so there's this malicious intent behind these seizures. They seem to come at certain times while the boy is in particular danger. Verse 16 brings out the issue that Matthew wants to highlight. And I brought him to your disciples and they could not heal him. They could not. They were not able. And they were not able to do what? They were not able to heal. And after Jesus casts out the demon and heals the boy, look at verse 19. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, why could we not cast it out? They want to understand why they could not do what they had presumably done before. But to continue to see why, let's continue working through the text. But before we see why they couldn't cast it out, we see in verses 17 and 18 how Jesus responds to this situation. And I called this in your outline number two, the Lord's frustration and power, verses 17 and 18, the Lord's frustration and power.
seems strange, I think, to think about Jesus as being frustrated. But it's clear from his response that he's frustrated or exasperated with the people he's ministering to. He came down from the mountain and he's immediately confronted with the sinful and unbelieving crowd. And in verse 17, Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. Now this exclamation reminds us of many Old Testament situations. And the words themselves are drawn from Deuteronomy 32. And I want you to see this and I want you to turn here. Turn to Deuteronomy. We're going to start in chapter 31. Deuteronomy 31, look at starting at verse 26. Take this book of the law and put it by the side of the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God, that it may be there for a witness against you. For I know how rebellious and stubborn you are. Behold, even today while I am yet alive with you, Moses here is speaking, Even today, while I am yet alive with you, you, Israel, have been rebellious against the Lord. How much more after my death? Assemble to me all the elders of your tribes and your officers that I may speak these words in their ears and call heaven and earth to witness against them. For I know that after my death you will surely act corruptly and turn aside from the way that I have commanded you. And in the days to come, evil will befall you because you will do what is evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger through the work of your hands. Verse 30, Then Moses spoke the words of this song until they were finished in the ears of all, or of all the assembly of Israel. Chapter 32, verse 1, Give ear, O heavens, and I will speak. Let the earth hear the words of my mouth. May my teaching drop as the rain, my speech distill as the dew, my like gentle rain upon the tender grass, like showers upon the herb. For I will proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God, the rock. His work is perfect, for all his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness, And without iniquity, just and upright is he. And then it switches in verse 5. They have dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation, which is what Jesus seems to quote from when he says, O faithless and twisted generation. Moses says they are a crooked and twisted generation. Skip down to verse 18. He says, You were unmindful of the rock that bore you, and you forgot the God who gave you birth, verse 19. The Lord saw it and spurned them because of the provocation of his sons and his daughters. And he said, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end will be, for they are a perverse generation, children in whom is no faithfulness. And so we have this twisted, crooked perverse generation, a generation without faithfulness in Moses' day. And so Moses sees his generation, and and in Deuteronomy, this is the, the second generation. Remember that first generation died in the desert. And so 
Moses recognizes his generation as twisted and without faithfulness. And remember as well, and this maybe reminds us, when Moses was given the law, and Moses came down from the mountain after the Lord had written on the tablets of stone, Moses came down from the mountain, and what did he see? He saw that Aaron had set up the golden calf which Israel was worshiping. And so Moses and Jesus have these similar mountaintop and coming down from the mountain experiences. Well, in Isaiah chapter 65, the Lord himself says, I spread out my hands all day long to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices. And I show you these just to kind of say that Jesus and what Jesus says in our text is very much in line with what the scriptures teach and with the scriptural view of man and with with that generation who should have recognized that Jesus was the Christ. And so Jesus is frustrated and exasperated with the generation, very much like God himself was frustrated with Israel through all of the the works that he did for them, and like Moses was frustrated with the Israel of his generation. But I think what we need to do to kind of help ourselves just understand this whole situation is to put ourselves there. You see, this father, he asks for help, and he says that the nine, they couldn't do it, and, and Jesus then rebukes the whole generation. See, Jesus kind of broad brushes, that's how we sometimes say it, he broad brushes the whole generation as faithless, without faith, and twisted or perverse. And so their lack of faith has twisted their spiritual discernment. And what we need to recognize, I think, or what's at least helpful for us to recognize is that there is a place for this kind of frustration and exasperation with people who are spiritually out of sync. And as sensitive, dare I even say oversensitive or sometimes oversensitive Canadian believers, we need to see that statements like these are sometimes warranted. Jesus didn't sin by calling out these sins of his generation. If they were a faithful and believing generation, the disciples, it would seem, would have been able to heal the boy. And so the sins of the culture have influenced the disciples. And I think we have to recognize at least that much that in some way this cry, O faithless and twisted generation, in some way it applies to the disciples as well. At the very least, they've been influenced by the culture around them, and so they can, Jesus can say to all of them, what a faithless and twisted generation, how long do I have to put up with you? How long do I have to bear you? How long do I have to endure you? How long am I going to have to be with you? In verse 20, Jesus will say that the disciples have little faith, not no faith, but they were the ones who could not heal the boy. And so in some sense, at least, Jesus is also speaking towards his disciples at this moment. They have been influenced by this faithless and perverse generation. Now that kind of brings a question in my mind, what would Jesus say about this generation? Or about this town? Or about this church? Or what would he say about your 
pastor. What would he say if he came down from heaven, if he could come down right now and he saw us and, and what we could or could not do as a local church? Now, whatever he would say, one thing I think we need to be careful of as we think about that is an oversensitivity to whatever it would be where instead of acknowledging our sinfulness and our backwardness, we take offense and pull away from the Lord Jesus. Even Yahweh himself again said that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's what God says about man in the world in general. He said of Israel, I spread out my hands all day to a rebellious people. Again, Moses said, for I know how rebellious and stubborn you are. Behold, even today, while I am yet alive with you, you have been rebellious against the Lord. How much more after my death? And Jesus said, oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Now, in all of this frustration, we do well to remember on the other side that that more often what we have seen in Jesus is compassion for the crowds. And we don't want to forget about that. Remember Matthew 15, and, and why not just turn there? Matthew 15, starting at verse 30. And great crowds came to him bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others, and they put them at his feet, and he healed them. So the crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. Then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd. And if I remember right, that's the third time that we've heard about Jesus's compassion. This is the the first time it's in the the first person singular, I have compassion on the crowd. But other times Matthew has told us that Jesus had compassion on the crowd. And that compassion is not lacking here either. Even as he says, oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long he's compassion and he calls for the boy to be brought to him. Bring him here to me, the Lord says. And in verse 18, Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of him and the boy was instantly healed or healed instantly. And so instantly and immediately Jesus healed the boy. And it's here that we find that the problem was a demon and not merely sickness. There was a demon behind these seizures that the boy was having. And Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out and the boy was healed. And once again, then we see the power of Jesus Christ on display. Even in the midst of a faithless and unbelieving generation, Jesus's power was not weakened. Now we've already seen this so often, the Lord's power, but this isn't here, this story isn't here so much to show us Jesus' power. We've, we've seen that already in Matthew's gospel, but it's, it's really here to provide a backdrop to provide us with this lesson on faith. And so let's get to that now in verse 20 and 21. Again, I'll just start reading at, at 19. This is number three, the Lord's explanation and promise. Starting in verse 19, then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, 
why could we not cast it out? And I'm just going to stop there for a moment. The we there is, is an emphatic we. It's, it's put in as a, an extra thing in the original text. It's, it's not necessary to be there. But, and so there's this emphasis on the disciples themselves. We could not. Why couldn't, why couldn't we do it, Lord? And I think that's important as we kind of see what's happening there and why, why did they fail? They were relying on themselves. But they asked the Lord, why could we not cast it out? And in verse 20, he says, he said to them, because of your little faith. For truly, I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. Now, some of the older manuscripts add another verse there, that something to the effect that this kind only comes out by prayer and fasting. And that's kind of drawn in from actually uh, Mark 9.29, Mark 9.29. Uh, I don't think it belongs in the Matthew text, but it is a true verse in Matthew, although the last part about fasting isn't in the best manuscripts of Matthew either. And so that's where verse 21, if you look in your ESV Bible, you'll notice that you likely don't have a verse 21, but there's a little footnote there. Um, so that was just kind of a brief explanation of that. But the reason, we're just going to stick with the text as we have it in the ESV and Matthew. But the reason they could not do it, the reason that they could not cast out the demon, again, was because of their little faith. Now we've seen this little faith before. It's always used in the Gospel of Matthew in reference to the disciples. We saw it in Matthew 6 and verse 30 where Jesus says, but if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? And so the disciples are those who doubt that God will clothe them. And so because of that, they are anxious and they are worried about what they're going to wear. And Jesus says, don't worry, O you of little faith, God will care for you. And you need to trust him to care for you. And you need to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and and let God take care of the rest. In chapter 8, you remember the great storm on the sea and the disciples woke Jesus and they said in in Matthew 8.25, save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? And then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. In Matthew chapter 14, you remember when Peter walked on the water. For that brief moment, Jesus had said, come in Matthew 14, 29. And so Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus, verse 30. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? And again in chapter 16, Jesus said in verse 8, O you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? And this was when they were worried because they had forgotten to bring bread as they went across the Sea of Galilee. 
And so little faith is different than no faith, which is translated in our text. If you're back in our passage in verse 17, faithless is, is probably more literally no faith without faith. Little faith is different than that. Little faith or small faith is faith that doubts. It's a wavering faith like Peter when he saw that the wind and, and, and the waves were, were kind of against him and he began to fear and he began to doubt and he began to sink. Jesus is going to go on to say that faith like a mustard seed is all that's needed to accomplish great things. And so this little faith isn't so much small as it's defective. D.A. Carson explained it this way, quote, Despite the etymology of the word, it probably does not refer so much to the littleness of their faith as to its poverty. Little faith, like a mustard seed, can be effectual. Poor faith, like that of the disciples here, is ineffectual. End quote. The mustard seed was the smallest seed that an Israelite would plant in their garden, and, and it became the, the go-to word picture for the smallest of the small, the mustard seed, the tiniest little thing. And, and their failure was because of their poor faith, whereas even the smallest genuine faith would have been enough. What this does then is it both minimizes and maximizes faith at the same time. And this is important. I want you to try to catch this, this, this minimizing and maximizing of faith. On the one hand, we see that the critical nature of faith, this maximizes faith, that their failure was due to a lack of faith or to poor faith. And so success in ministry depends on faith. We need to believe and depend on God. But on the other hand, faith is minimized because even the smallest faith is capable of great things. You see, the power of faith is never in the faith itself. The power is in the one who is believed on. The power is in the object of faith. And to see this further, let's, let's talk about faith a little bit. What is faith? The dictionary defines it as confidence or trust in someone or something. And here, of course, we're talking about confidence in God, trust in God. Faith is believing and trusting God. God is the object of faith, and, and it becomes obvious now that any power comes from God. Not from my trust in Him or your trust in Him. The power is in God, not in the trust. Now let's go deeper. Where are we to get this confidence or trust in God? Where are we to get confidence to trust God? How do we come to know what we can trust God for? Or how do we learn who God is and and what He will do or what He won't do? And we recognize immediately that God must reveal these things to us. And where does God do that? Where does He reveal to us His will, what He will or won't do? Well, let me tell you first how He doesn't reveal these things. He doesn't reveal His will to us in feelings or through sudden impulses or through senses or by inserting certain thoughts in our minds. If that was the way that God worked, how would we know which feelings were from God and which were from ourselves? There's not a single command in Scripture to listen for God's voice in our hearts or any such thing. 
And so in order for us to trust God, we need to know Him and what He would have us do from His Word. And that's really the only safe way that we can do this. We need to understand who God is and what He will do from His Word. And it must be from His Word rightly interpreted. Not from some impression that we get from reading His Word or reading a verse out of context, but from His Word rightly interpreted. And then when we know God and we know what He promises to do, faith moves forward in obedience with trust and dependence on Him to do what He promised. You see, the power again is in the object, in God Himself and in Christ. But faith steps forward in obedience, dependent obedience on God. And it would seem that this is exactly where the disciples failed. Remember I told you that there's a, an emphasis on the word we. Why could we not do it? You did it, Jesus. Why could we not? Well, because they were not dependent on God in it. They likely did the same things that they always had done before when they cast out demons. It doesn't go into detail, but they, they likely told the demon to get out. They would have went through the motions, whatever those motions were, to do a healing and to cast out demons. And, and they did those motions, but without dependence on God. They would have said the words that at other times they said, but whatever they did without true dependence on God, without trusting in Him, it accomplished nothing. And without God and without Christ, we can do nothing. You see, the power to cast out demons and to heal is not in the faith, it is in God, and God would not do it without them looking to Him and trusting in Him. Now, God has not promised us that He will heal like He promised the twelve. And so we aren't to expect that from Him. But we do need to learn from this account. Matthew wants us to learn as disciples of Christ to learn from this to be effective. And so we are to exercise faith as we are disciples and followers of Christ. We're to exercise faith and trust God and thereby fulfill our mission just like The nine had failed that day in their mission. Again in verse 20, look at it again. For truly I say to you, Jesus says, for truly I say to you, and the Lord is there emphasizing that this is an important and a true statement. I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. Now, we talked about the mustard seed. It's the smallest of the small. We don't need great faith. We simply need a tiny bit of genuine faith in a great God. And if we have that, we will say to this mountain, move, and it will move. Now, we need to stop for a minute here and think about this again. Just like the mustard seed was proverbial of something really small, So the metaphor of moving a mountain meant to accomplish something really great. And so to say that we will speak to this mountain and and command it to move and it will move, it does not mean that, that, that we need to start declaring our reality or that we need to start speaking to our problems. 
in Jesus' name or, or any kind of weird thing like that. That's not at all what, what Jesus is saying here. Again, the power is not in us. It's not in our words. It's not in our faith. It's in the Lord himself. And what Jesus is saying then is, is simply this, that the smallest faith can accomplish the greatest things. It can overcome the greatest challenges and difficulties. Why? Because God can overcome the greatest challenges and God will do so when we trust in Him. And that hopefully brings us back to an earlier question. How do we know what mountains or what significant obstacles God wants us to trust Him to overcome? How do we know what things... How do we know what things that are impossible for us to do are possible when we rely on God to nonetheless accomplish them through us? And again, the answer is that these things must be revealed in the Word of God. They must be revealed to us by God in His Word. And we, when we know with certainty that God, not merely us, but that God would have us move this mountain, right? You see the difference there? It's not just... I want a mountain moved. It's, this is a mountain that's in God's way. This is, this is against His purposes, His will. And so when we know with certainty that God would move this mountain, then it really doesn't take much faith to believe it. If God says He's gonna, He wants to move a mountain, if God says He wants to overcome a difficulty, then He'll overcome it. And it doesn't, doesn't take much effort on my part to believe it. I just see that God wants to do this and He has said He will. And so I step forward with trust and dependence on Him, looking to Him to do that thing. And when we understand it this way, what Jesus is promising here comes very close to His other promises about faith and prayer. And I want to take you to some of these, and, and maybe you should just turn with me. Let's start in Matthew and just go a few ch- chapters ahead to Matthew 21. Matthew 21, 21, very similar. <clears throat> Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, remember the fig tree was cursed, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. Verse 22, and whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Let's go to the parallel passages in John. We'll start in John chapter 14 and look at verse 13. John 14, 13, and 14, Jesus says, Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Turn to John 15 and verse 16. Jesus says there, You did not choose me, but I chose you, the twelve. I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. And so we see that we were chosen and appointed, the the apostles were anyways, to bear fruit that would remain. And part of that fruit is that they are going to ask the Father in Jesus' name and and Jesus and the Father are going to give those things 
to the disciples. Look at chapter 16 and verse 23. In that day, Jesus says, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. And then going back to Matthew, Matthew chapter 7 and verse 7 says, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. And so we are to ask according to God's will that He might be glorified, that He might be exalted, and that He might be revealed. That He would be shown for all the greatness of, of who He is. We're to ask that, that God would be glorified and we're to ask according to God's will when we pray. And we're to ask in Jesus' name, which means according to who He is and according to what He is about, in line with His purposes and His mission. And we trust God or we believe God to do what He promised because we ask Him according to His Word for the things that He has told us that He wants to accomplish. And when we rely on God with this kind of faith, even the smallest faith or, or the slightest genuine dependence on God, nothing will be impossible for us. Like the nine... They failed to do that day what they were commanded to do. They failed to accomplish their mission. They failed to do what Jesus gave them to do. They failed to do what Jesus had given them authority to do. Like they failed, the, the promise here for us is that, that we don't have to fail. That we don't have to fail. The weak though we are, even with Jesus at the right hand of God and not with us to do the works Himself, we can accomplish our mission if we trust the Father and if we trust our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we can go and we can make disciples and we can baptize them and we can teach them to obey, to do all that Jesus commanded. And, and, and part of this would even include then our sanctification. We can be made holy because this is God's desire in this age. We can accomplish the mission that the Lord has given us of making disciples of the nation. And Jesus will be with us and He will bear fruit, fruit through us to the end of the age, to the glory of God. And this is, this is, I think, the key thing that we're meant to draw from this text. We can accomplish our mission by trusting and depending on God. Not by just going through the motions without dependence on God, but by doing what God has commanded us to do in dependence on Him. And God will be glorified and mountains, metaphorical mountains, will be moved. Let's pray. Father, we... Just marvel at the, the extent of this promise that you have given us. We thank you, Lord, that nothing will be impossible to us, nothing that you have commanded us and commissioned us to do. And Father, we pray that you would help us to have this kind of faith, this even mustard seed faith, that we would see you and recognize you, that we wouldn't doubt as we look around at the, the circumstances, but we would look to the great God 
who you are and that you would reveal what you would have us do and what you will do through your word so that we can see the obstacles overcome to the glory of God. We pray this again, Father, because we want to see you glorified as we go about the work that you have given us to do. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.